Hi, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Leona, Tracy's oldest friend, and on today's show, how Russia is using Brittany Griner to manipulate America's racial division, plus why Nigerian pop culture is everywhere. All right, here's the show. Hey, y'all, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm your guest host, Tracy Hunt. Last week, WNBA star Brittany Griner was sentenced to nine years in a Russian prison. Griner was arrested one week before Russia invaded Ukraine. Brittany Griner is detained in Russia. Brittany Griner was arrested in Russia. WNBA star Brittany Griner is being detained in Moscow as tensions ratcheted up between Russia and the U.S. over the invasion of Ukraine. Russian authorities said she had cannabis oil in a vape pen. As soon as I saw the video of her at the airport, I said, oh no. That's Kimberly St. Julian Vernon, a doctoral student who focuses on the Black experience in Russia. As soon as I saw her, I'm like, she's going, I said, she's, to my mind, I said, she's going to prison because of the timing. To me, the timing is what let me know, as a person who works on this region, that it was going to be an uphill fight and that she was going to be used as much as she could for Russian leverage. And she's right. Brittany Griner is being used for leverage. There's the obvious ways, like the prisoner swap being negotiated by the Biden administration, but also in less obvious ways. Russia can now play on America's racial tensions and make outlandish requests during hostage negotiations. She's Black, she's gay, and this is a marijuana case. What are the three biggest issues in the United States in terms of domestic politics, right? Marijuana convictions, LGBTQ issues, anti-Black racism in the carceral system. Today, we're looking at this perfect storm and going back in time to understand the long history of Russia using American race tensions for its own political gain. So there's talk of a prisoner swap between the United States and Russia. Russia is asking the U.S. to free a Russian arms dealer named Viktor Boot and a convicted murderer, Vadim Krasikov. In exchange, the U.S. would get Brittany Griner and a former Marine who's also being detained, Paul Whelan. As someone who studies Russia, how likely do you think that is? So this has been interesting. The ways that the public knows about a potential prisoner swap right now, this is unprecedented. Usually the public finds out after it's happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, So in this way, we're in uncharted territory. Yeah. I think the prisoner swap will happen because Russia wants Victor Boot. Months before Brittany Griner was arrested, they were talking about Victor Boot. So I think it'll happen. How soon that happens is up for debate. Yeah. Um, but also, Russia has already said they're not going to do a two-for-one swap. They're not just going to let us have Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan for Victor Boot. They would want a minimum of two-for-two, two, which is why they mentioned mm-hmm. Vadim Krasikov, who is li- like he's an assassin. He murdered someone in broad daylight in the Berlin Tiergarten. So like mm. this is like someone being killed like down the street from Congress in broad daylight. Um, so he's yeah. serving time for murder in a German prison. I think this is Russia saying... Well, we know you want her. You have said in every press conference about Brittany Garner that you want her and you're going to do everything to get her back. So why not give us Vadim Krasikov? But I also think another part of this that ties back to the war, Mm -hmm. when you think about the biggest European supporters and supporting meaning promising aid to Ukraine, Mm -hmm. it's been the United States and Germany. I feel like what Russia is asking for is a little absurd. You know, like... 
Russia thinks that the U.S. kind of runs all of its allies the way they run their allies. And so that, of course, you know, the United States can get somebody out of a German prison. Meanwhile, like, you know, Biden doesn't necessarily feel comfortable asking Germany for this because if Germany asked him for this, he probably wouldn't do it. So it just makes me like if they're really insisting on a two for two deal, like I just feel like, you know, is Britney doomed? I don't think Britney's doomed unless the United States decides that Victor Bout is worth too much to give back to Russia. Mm -hmm. This is leverage Russia has not had over the United States since the Cold War. She is the highest profile American. And a lot of people focus on how outrageous it is that she got nine years for such a small Mm -hmm. amount. Like, that's the point. Mm -hmm. Is that either you make this deal or this woman's going to serve nine years in a Russian prison. Yeah. So I actually want to dig into some history a little bit and talk about Russian African-Americans. Obviously, during the Cold War, Russian propaganda often highlighted the poor treatment of Black Americans in the U.S. to call out American hypocrisy. You know, prominent Black Americans like Paul Robeson, W.E.B. Du Bois, Langston Hughes even traveled to the Soviet Union and came back to the U.S. sort of touting Russia as some sort of anti-racist utopia. Now Brittany Greiner, a Black woman, is being used by Russia in a different way. Can you walk us through how Russia has wielded America's racial divisions throughout history? Absolutely. If we go back to the 1920s, you start having African-Americans who are going to the Soviet Union. They're interested in the Soviet experiment, but also because the Soviet Union frames itself internationally as an anti-racist and anti-colonial state. (laughs) And in the 30s, A lot of them go to the Soviet Union for work. I mean, the Soviet Union at this point is having mass Mm. industrialization. They don't have enough workers who have the skills. So they recruit workers in America and they recruit African-Americans in particular Mm. because they know (laughs) what it's like to be back in the United States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of people don't know, like, the cotton grown in Central Asia, that dates back to African-American specialists from the Tuskegee Institute going to Central Asia to help them learn how to grow cotton and irrigate cotton. Wow. And a lot of the African-Americans who went to the Soviet Union, they saw it as what was possible, particularly in the American South. And unfortunately, when they come back to the United States, many of them have to deny the good experiences they have because if you're not Langston Hughes, if you're not Du Bois, if you talk good about the Soviet Union, you're, you're going to lose your job. Mm-hmm. You know, they come back to the Red Scare. They fundamentally had much better experiences in the Soviet Union than they did in the United States. Yeah. On the flip side, and what, I've, what I'm working on now is how the image of suffering, particularly African-American suffering, became the controlling image of blackness. Mm-hmm. And so when you start having African students come in the, in the mid-50s onward, What's fascinating is when African students would complain about racism, you know, and they would write letters as an African student who was killed in 1964, and there were protests by African students in the Soviet Union about this, particularly in Moscow. When they had meetings with administrators of the universities, they'd be like, well, what do you know about racism? This isn't America. This isn't the South. You have no idea what racism is like. So in many ways, Russia has always used anti-Black racism and Black suffering for its own gain. It's used it to launder its mm-hmm. reputation. Mm-hmm. And so what Brittany represents is new in terms of treatment of African-Americans in Russia because 
she no longer has the privilege that many African-Americans had. African-Americans were treated better than Africans in the Soviet Union. Africans were seen as the little brothers who needed socialist education and needed the leadership of the Soviet Union to obtain modernity. And she embodies all of this. And now we see all of these discussions happening in American public discourse. And it's showing, like it did in the 60s when Russia was beaming you know, pictures of what was happening in Mississippi and Louisiana, they were beaming those in the Soviet Union, they were beaming those across Africa to be like, this is what America does. It's the same thing. And I think that's kind of what's missing is that Brittany is part of something much larger and much older than a lot of people recognize. My understanding is that Brittany might serve her sentence in a Russian penal colony. These places are reported to be like rife with sexual assault and abuse. Um, I even heard that they might cut off Brittany's dreads. Um, and, you know, just imagining her going through that is just such a gut punch. You know, as someone who's an expert about on Black folks in Russia, how does that hit you or thinking about that? The Russian prison system is interesting. So like the penal colonies are direct descendant of the gulag. Like the, and the gulag is a descendant from the way the imperial prison system worked. So the penal colony is more like a camp, like you have barracks and a lot of it's like doing labor, manual labor or sewing um, prisoner uniforms or making furniture. That's a thing that started. So cutting off her dreads is going to be a possibility to prevent lice. You're not in good conditions at all. Um, Unfortunately, I mean, Sexual assault and just violence is rampant across the Russian prison system. The benefit, I think, for Brittany is that she is an American. Because she's so high profile and Russia needs that leverage, she will be much safer than, say, like an African who's in Russia and gets, you know, convicted of the same thing. She will be in better condition. But it also is, she's going to be isolated. You know, I keep thinking about, like, just Britney's body as well. Like, you know, she is six, you know, she's six, eight. She has these dreads. She's black. Like she really just like sticks out in Russia. And I've also read that part of the reason she's being held is because for Putin, she's an example of like what he sees as Western immorality. What do you think of that? Putin has for the past 15 years has shown America as an example of decadence and immorality. Yeah. And he's used that to oppress the LGBTQ community in Russia. But also, Mm -hmm. um, Russia has engaged in, you know, structural racism. And it's not necessarily against Africans, but in Russia, Central Asians, people from the actual Caucasus, like Georgia and Chechnya, real Caucasians, Mm -hmm. they're targeted by the police. They are often, you know, targeted by skinhead groups and white supremacist groups, and nothing happens. Mm -hmm. They aren't investigated. But being a hyper visible minority. And I mean, I've been that in Ukraine, Bulgaria, Serbia. Britney's body is going to be read and understood in many different ways. Mm-hmm. Her hair. I mean, I, when I, admittedly, when I went to Ukraine, I did not have natural hair. I have a natural hair now. I had a nice, long, straight weave put in because I was like, well, maybe people won't stare at me as much. For many people, she'll be the first black person I've ever seen in real life. I think the important part to remember, too, is like she's where she's going. Russian prisoners are not supporters of the Kremlin, right? So, I mean, yeah, and no, I, I can I can imagine, yeah. <laughs> and a lot of women are serving yeah. time for 
protecting themselves against men who have tried to kill them or beaten them because Russia decriminalized domestic violence. They are what? Oh yeah, Russia's decri- decriminalized Russia, you know, domestic violence. There's actually an American who's in prison right now where she's being held right now because her boyfriend um, her Russian boyfriend got intoxicated and he attacked her and she like took a knife to defend herself. And there are also LGBTQ women who were in prison for violating the law that says they promoted immoral lifestyles. So at this point, how can Americans best advocate for Griner's release? Though I kind of think like maybe we shouldn't because then that just causes more problems. It's the rock in the hard place. Yeah. I think the biggest thing is to... Merge Britney and Paul Whelan's cases in how we talk about them right. because it's really easy for detractors to say, you only care about Britney Garner because she's black and she's gay. Paul Whelan is mm-hmm. serving 16 years and he's straight and he's white and he's male. They're both wrongfully detained. Both of their families have been suffering. Paul Whelan's family for over four years to try to get them back. So I think merging them together is helpful because it, it staves off a lot of these bad faith arguments about mm-hmm. Britney's case, but also showing support for the Biden administration. And I mean, we have tons of reasons to jump on the Biden administration and we should for those reasons. But in this case, yeah. for Britney's case, they really are doing everything that they actually can to get her mm-hmm. out. And I think I have to talk about Britney was declared wrongfully detained Months before other Americans who have been declared wrongfully detained, she got that designation Mm -hmm. very early. She got a call and a letter from the president, from Secretary of State uh, Anthony Blinken, from the National Security Advisor. She got all those either earlier than other Mm -hmm. Americans or like most Americans who are wrongfully detained. They're still over 63. Their families haven't gotten that. Paul Whelan's family got a phone call after Britney's family. So I think it's important to remember that because she... They have made her a priority. Their mm-hmm. actions have shown that she's a priority. Um, but these are things, these are discussions and these are things that generally happen in the dark. And we don't know about them until they're done. So even the fact that we know right. this much information is important. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Kimberly, for doing this today. This is really, really great. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again to Kimberly St. Julian Varnon. She is a doctoral student at the University of Pennsylvania who writes about the Black experience in Russia. We're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, Nigerian artists like Burna Boy and Wizkid are everywhere. Why is Nigerian pop culture making such big waves? We'll be right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Dignity Memorial. When you plan your celebration of life in advance, it becomes a gift from you to your family. Because nobody should have to plan for a loss while they're experiencing one. With Dignity Memorial Providers, you can pre-plan every detail to give your family and yourself valuable peace of mind, knowing that everything will be taken care of with professionalism, compassion, and attention to detail that is second to none. For additional information, visit DignityMemorial.com. So the other day, one of my favorite Nigerian writers, Bolu Babalola, was tweeting about my favorite Nigerian singer, Tense. Thames's Defiant and Earnest EP for Broken Ears is always on repeat in my house, and I love Babalola's witty, sexy writing. Anyway, she wrote this about Thames, front and back, face and body and voice. And on top of that, she is Nigerian. 
How can one woman have it all? One thing about Nigerians is that they're going to gossip themselves and each other. And honestly, they have a reason to, because right now we're in the midst of a Nigerian moment. Afrobeats artists like my beloved Thames, Burna Boy, and Wizkid are topping the charts and embarking on ambitious tours. In the world of literature, there have been a number of breakout hits like My Sister the Serial Killer, Babalola's instant bestseller, and Tomi Adeyemi's book, Children of Blood and Bone, which is being adapted into a movie. But Nigerian communities and cultures have been in the U.S. for ages. So why is all of this happening now? We're in this moment because, one, Nigeria has such a huge diaspora. Because of that, we're in a space where anything coming out of Nigeria can be really transferred and distributed amongst the diverse group of people in all these different countries outside of Nigerians. That's Amarachi Nwosu. She's a Nigerian-American filmmaker and artist with experience working in entertainment and music. She's also the founder of Melanin Unscripted, a production studio that makes stories about complex identities and cultures. We're all coming to a space of wanting to understand our identity, our culture, ourselves more, and especially as Black people around the world. Um, People are really looking to Africa for those answers. So one thing that's also been playing a role in spreading Afrobeats is TikTok. I'm pretty sure the first time I heard CK's song, Love Nwan Titi, was on TikTok. (laughs) How much of Afrobeats becoming mainstream do you think is because of TikTok? Social media as a whole has played a huge role. Like my personal experience in you know, being disconnected from what was happening on the ground in Nigeria because for like 10 years, I wasn't in a space where like my parent could afford to take me back. And so in that time period, how I got exposed to a lot of what was happening and what inspired me to also be able to pay for my own ticket to go was things like Instagram and Twitter because, you know, I was seeing like these movements happening, like parties, experiences, fashion, culture that I wasn't exposed to traditionally on mainstream media. If you're thinking about what in high school they were showing Africa through was like Feed the Children videos. Those infomercials that were, you know, by nonprofits that ultimately were propelling this image of despair around Africa. And so, you know, I had to look at the everyday person and the best way to do that and to enter that portal was through Instagram, was through following people that I admired. I think the biggest impact we've seen coming from Nigerian music is Afrobeats, artists like Burna Boy, Wizkid, Tem, CK, you know, they're topping the charts, they're selling out concerts, they're working with like Drake and Beyonce and Justin Bieber. And, you know, I think Felagute laid the groundwork for these other artists. Can you talk about Fela's impact and how those artists are like following in his footsteps, but also like making new paths for themselves. 
Yeah, so I mean, obviously, like Fela Kuti is the father of Afrobeats, the mm-hmm. founder of this Afrobeat sound. And one thing that's really unique about Fela is the fact that he really celebrated his Nigerian heritage and culture, but he was mm-hmm. also very critical of it in many ways. Of like, also as a revolutionary, how do we think beyond the binds of our own identity, but also explore, connect with people outside of our culture and the mm-hmm. Afrobeat sound the origination of it took from you know elements of black american culture like jazz Mm -hmm. like funk like soul um and fella always says you know music is a very spiritual thing you have to be conscious of how you use music and i with that momentum um i think he really set the stage for afro fusion um which is now what we're seeing really transcend globally where people are pulling things like r&b like hip-hop even just like reggaeton or caribbean music dance hall etc and has kind of created this whole new sound but fella really set the stage for that and now we have you know the amazing artists that you mentioned earlier um who i feel like are now coming into their own finding their own sound and developments but also kind of setting a stage for the next generation to have freedom and taking risk and not always going in the traditional route like you know a lot of people know burna today but i also want to give a big credit to the Altay movement that started in Nigeria. What was happening at this time is the same essence that Fela had. They were like, you know what? We don't want to make the traditional Afrobeat sound. Like we want to do things that might be identified more as hip hop or like electronic. Yeah, you know, kind of following off of that, I love the song Essence. Um, but I really don't think I needed that Justin Bieber remix. <laughs> But, you know, factually, the remix did do better than the original. And I'm wondering, you know, love to get your perspective of this. Like, is it better to do collaborations that might not be true to the culture necessarily? Do you need these kinds of collaborations in order to chart, you know, true to the culture, et cetera? Like, what do we even mean by that? Also, like, is another side question. But I'm interested to get your perspective of that. I think sometimes a lot of these decisions are made by the labels themselves. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes these labels are going to make decisions based on like what they know and what they feel like is going to work for the demographics they understand. Um, So in a situation like Essence featuring Justin Bieber, who's to say that if maybe Rihanna or Beyonce were available, they wouldn't have been on the song. But I also do think it's important to always be critical and understanding in the sense of like, it was primarily an African-American community that really made that song what it was in the U.S. Mm -hmm. But also, I don't feel like it's my right to judge or make somebody feel like they're not able to collaborate outside of their cultural group because, you know, Beyonce can have a song with Lady Gaga. Why can't Wizkid, Thames, and Justin Bieber have a record? Yeah. So, yeah, you know, obviously Nigerian and African cultures aren't a monolith. What other kinds of music are we missing out on? In South Africa, we have Amapiano that's massive right now, which obviously is like Afro house music. In Ghana, like some of the traditional sounds, of course, are like high life music. You know, which I think has propelled the current Afrobeat sound coming out of Ghana as well. And while like, again, it's really easy to put everything under Afrobeat, these artists have their own approach, their own instruments that they're ultimately using. There's so many different things taking place on the continent right now. And it's definitely 
definitely not limited to Nigeria at all. Yeah. You know, we've been talking primarily about music. Where else do you see Nigerian culture making its way into the U.S. mainstream? One of the big ways Nigerian culture has made its ways, obviously, through literature very early. You know, we had Chinua Achebe, who created Things Fall Apart. I know many of us know reading that early on in school. Um, but then followed is like people like Chimamanda and Gozi Adichie creating Americana and now giving a lens through what is it like being an African immigrant in America. One thing that I'm seeing, I think there's a report that came out actually earlier this month that said like the biggest seed rounds of funding across the world are going to Africa and Nigeria is one of the biggest spaces for that. People are investing in innovation coming out of the continent because the reality is that the average person in sub-Saharan Africa is between the ages of 16 and 35. That's a very young demographic. You know, it's a space where this new generation are thinking beyond even what is popular right now. Um, But the challenge there is now with the limited narratives on Nigerian youth, because the truth is the Nollywood industry hasn't really created a space for young narratives yet. With this growing demographic of young people on the continent of Africa. Netflix has been one of the biggest investors in terms of content creation coming out of the continent. And with that has come, you know, narratives like Blood and Water that are that is on Netflix about South African youth. I think now it's looking at Netflix to invest in the young and youth demographic there of telling those stories, but also empowering people behind the scenes that can tell those stories authentically. Yeah. Do you think there's a risk that Nigerian culture becomes a stand-in for African culture? I kept thinking about, like, when I, I'm from Barbados, and when I was growing up, like, Jamaican culture was Caribbean culture, you know? <laughs> and it was, like, the same kind of setup. It was, like, the Jamaican diaspora was huge. Jamaica is the biggest country. Jamaica had this, like, very good music infrastructure, you know? And it wasn't until God Bless Rihanna came along and finally people knew, could point to Barbados on a map. Just like with Jamaican culture in the early 2000s or the 90s and the 80s, where people thought of Caribbean culture, it was Jamaica. But, you know, I think now when we think of Caribbean culture, like it's not just limited. And I think that also took more artists to come out. I think also Jamaica set a stage for more Caribbean artists to come from different countries, whether it be Trinidad or Barbados, like you mentioned. So I think now what is happening is that like there's a challenge because I don't think it's up to Nigerian people. Per se, to be the ones to tell other cultures and um, spaces to be like, oh, you guys should go propel your music the same way we are. But I think what it's doing is inspiring a momentum that other people can follow. There's definitely a gateway that's been open. And I don't think that gateway um, has been open just for Nigerian artists and creators. All right, Amirachi, thank you so much. This is such a good conversation. Um, I hope you enjoyed it too. Yes, thank you so much, Tracy. I really appreciate this conversation and shout out to you. Shout out to NPR. It's been a minute. Thanks again to Amarachi and Wosu. Up next, a game of Who Said That with two former guest hosts of the show. Stick around. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Tracy Hunt, and I'm here with two people you might already know from their stints guest hosting this show. Code Switch co-host, B.A. Parker. Hello. And from All Things Considered, Juana Summers. Hey there. We're here to play a game called Who 
who said that? You've both been in my chair before, so you already know the rules, but I'll give you a refresher anyway. I'll share a quote you might have heard in the news this week, and you have to guess who said that or what it's about. There are no buzzers. Just yell out the answer. There are zero prizes. And as former guest host of It's Been a Minute, I expect both of you to bring your A games. All right. What was that, Parker? (laughs) I don't know. I'm not a competitive person. (laughs) But you are today for the next 10 to 15 minutes. All right. It's a fight to the death. It's a fight to the death. So here's the first quote. Maybe the best word to describe what I'm up to is evolution. I'm here to tell you that I'm evolving away from tennis. That is Serena. Serena. Toward the other things that are important to me. (laughs) So you both said it at the same time. The one, I saw you like raise your arms in triumph before you said anything. (laughs) I know the listeners can't see us on Zoom, but I was going to start like pantomiming the serve, although my serve would be really ugly because I have like two left feet and I'm not athletic at all. (laughs) So um, it's a tie. Okay. So that's Serena Williams from an interview in Vogue this week. She is transitioning away from being an athlete to focus on her family and her venture capital firm. How do you guys feel about Serena retiring? I feel like it's definitely like an end of an era. I mean, I don't want her to go, but I also, you know, she don't have to do this no more. <laughs> no, like what? Yeah. What else does she have left to prove at this point? <laughs> She's already goat. She's goat. She is the goat. Right. I mean, I read the Vogue piece and at first I, I felt really sad because I love watching her compete and she means so much. But then I was thinking about it and I'm really happy for her because she's leaving on her terms. She's going to do what she wants to do. And she also used this platform to make what I think was a really powerful statement about motherhood and black motherhood and mm-hmm. the really hard and frankly unfair choices that women athletes and childbearing athletes have to make that their male and non-childbearing counterparts don't have to make. So she did it all. She's done the things. Look, I'm I'm happy she's going to do what she wants to do. Would she have to do this if she were a man? I don't know. What do you mean, retire? Yeah, like, because I guess, you know, like, what's his name? Nadal? I don't know men. Raphael Nadal. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) There are men who were, like, in her generation, tennis players, who were still competing because they don't have to take care of their own children or something. I don't know. Well, I mean, that's the thing we have to remember, right, is Serena Williams almost died giving birth to Olympia. She had a very Mm -hmm. traumatic medical experience. And one of the things that she talked about is how she went from playing while breastfeeding. I believe she won the Australian Open when she was two months pregnant. She's gone through all these trials, all these things that a man would never have to consider. And she says very clearly, like, I don't want to be pregnant while being a competitive athlete at the top of my game again. That's not something I'm interested in doing. And that's, I mean, that's my point is like, that's a choice that the Rafael Nadals of the world will never have to make. Man, being a woman is the ghetto sometimes. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, like, I love being a woman and then I'm like, man, this sucks. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So next quote, quote number two. A year ago, I was willing to walk away from music because I was tired of the negative energy it attracted. But what I've learned is that even when I'm minding my business, y'all gonna be negative and nosy. So if I can't have peace, neither can you. I'm coming back. Cry about it. Who is that? Oh no. Oh no. If it ain't Rihanna, then who is it? Would would Rihanna have to say y'all are so negative and nosy? (laughs) I'm gonna give you a hint. Um, You can walk a mile in her Louboutins. Oh, Iggy Azalea? Yep, yep. Oh, she could have stayed home. (laughs) (laughs) 
I was like, girl, who asked? Like, I don't think no one is looking for you. <laughs> what now? What now? What now? Yes, yes. To quote Azalea Banks, so what now? What now? <laughs> okay, so um, last one, last one. Blank is closing its Italian restaurants. Goodbye forever to Hawaiians with pineapple. Domino's. I am a trash human and I stand by my food choices. <laughs> Wait, Domino's is closing? No, Domino's is closing its restaurants in Italy. Uh, well, why were they in Italy? That is a great <laughs> question. <laughs> Italians, no shade to Domino's because I am also a trash human. But like, Italians are the real ones. Right. Why would you put that there? Parker, maybe this answers your question as to why they were there in the first place. That's from a headline in Italian business news outlet, Affari Italiani. Mm-hmm. Doesn't that just sound like a restaurant that you would go to in New York? Affari Italiani. We are such tacky Americans. <laughs> Keep talking. Domino's Pizza just closed its last 13 stores. 13 in Italy. When they first launched there in 2015, they planned to open 880 stores <laughs> and they promised, quote unquote, purely Italian ingredients and their U.S. style delivery service. But Domino's Italia was ultimately done in by the pandemic, only the pandemic, and a bustling delivery market for mom and pop pizza restaurants. Ciao, Domino's. We hardly knew ya. Look, even your fanciest Italian traveler needs the joy of dipping their overcooked Domino's pizza and some ranch, dipping that crust, a little garlic butter sauce. I think I think that needs to be a global experience. Wanda, were you doing it? I'm from Missouri. I do a lot of questionable things with my food. That's wild. <laughs> you know what, Wanda? I'm going to stick up for you because, like... Thank you. Thank you. Domino's? It's fine. It's okay. There's a moment for Domino's. There is a moment for There's a moment for, for Domino's. I like a Hawaiian pizza. I'm not going to lie. Um, I like a little sweet with my savory kind of combination. Who do you think were the Italians going to Domino's in Italia? Expats? American tourists? Okay, those are not Italians. Okay, fair, fair. <laughs> Again, maybe this is why Domino's is no longer there. This is also part of it. Yeah, I, f- I find it hilarious that they're blaming the pandemic, but okay. So Parker got two and Wana got two. And so you're tied. That's how I like it. Okay. This is a good place to leave it. Congratulations to both of you. Parker, Wana, thank you so much for playing. Thank you. This was fun. Thanks again to B.A. Parker, co-host of Code Switch, and Juana Summers, co-host of All Things Considered, for playing with me. This episode was produced by Barton Girdwood, Andrea Gutierrez, Liam McBain, and Janet Ujang Lee. Our intern is Ehianeta Aragon. We had engineering help from Robert Rodriguez, and a special thanks to KQED's Corey Antonio Rose. Our editors are Jessica Placek and Jessica Mendoza. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of Programming is Yolanda Sanguini. And Anya Grunman is NPR's Senior VP of Programming. All right, thanks for listening. I'm Tracy Hunt. Take care.